Thanks, Sid, and thanks very much, everybody, for coming. Um, this is the first talk I've given about this book. So I don't know whether that means you're incredibly lucky or incredibly unlucky, because I've never actually told any of these stories, tested them, but you're kind of being tested on here. I'll be checking to see where you'd laugh and frown, and I'll be monitoring all of that closely. I don't know if any of you have ever written a book before, um, but it's awful. It's a terrible job. It's absolutely awful. And my editor's here, Tom. I'm sorry to say that, but it is such a difficult job. And you know, it took two years to write this book. Lots of low moments. So I'm so excited to finally be able to see it and to actually talk about it with you. Right. So what I thought I would do, what I thought I would do is to tell you, uh, kind of tell you, half tell you, three stories from this book. Now, the reason I wrote this book was because I had this two senses, really. One, I've been working for a think tank, Demos, for a decade now, which is, in think tank years is about 150, because everyone leaves after two years, but I'm still there. And the purpose of Demos is to get more people engaged in politics. It was founded 30 years ago. And by almost any measure, Demos has utterly failed. And that is incredibly frustrating. And one of the reasons we failed is because, and I'm sure you feel it too, this great frustration about how politics works, that there aren't really any bold ideas, that it's very dull, it's very uninspiring. And you, we, even now, even with what seems to be quite a polarized politics, actually a relatively narrow band of acceptable political ideas. And I thought, well, I, that's one of the reasons I think people are frustrated. And the second thing was that I don't think that's sustainable. I look at the challenges that are coming down the line, whether they're environmental or economic or technological, and I just don't see how our current political setup is going to resolve them. I really don't. I think it's completely unsustainable how we're doing politics now. So I wanted to try to get out there and find some of the really radical alternatives to how we do politics today. And a little bit like with the dark net where I bought drugs from the Silk Road and have been going on about bloody ransomware for ages and no one ever listened to me about it, but forget that. Uh, I wanted to kind of get into the, the people and the characters. You know, what is it that motivates people to get involved in fringe politics? How on earth do you keep going when everybody says you're completely mad? What are the, the excitements and the joys and the tribulations of being involved in radical political movements? Because so much of it is actually about personalities. It's about people and their stories. And I thought that was really important because one day, I truly believe that some of these crazy ideas are going to be our mainstream, our kind of tomorrow's mainstream, just as it's always been in history. That one day, it's those guys on the fringe that become the mainstream, and I really think that's going to happen soon. So let me start with where I started this book in 2000. Oh, no, I'm not going to start where I started this book. I'm going to start with making this clicker work. Where do I point this clicker? Is it over at you? Yes. That's not the start. See, I told you I was testing this on you. This is all kind of... just want to start with a couple of quick statistics that really bother me and they really worry me. And this is kind of why I wrote the book. You may have seen this one floating around. 
This is the number of people who believe it is essential to live in a democracy by country and by decade of birth. And it's a pretty striking uh, chart, isn't it? Because over here, people that were born in 1980 compared to people born in 1930, you can see it goes from around, in most countries here, between 70 and 80% down to between 20 and... I mean, Sweden, as ever, is the exception. But it's a pretty precipitous drop, the number of people that believe it's essential to live in a democracy. What the hell's going on? This is pretty terrifying. Think about the demographic shift over the next 10 years as well, when people who are currently 8, 9, 10 years old are able to vote. How's the graph going to look then? This scares the hell out of me. A couple of other similar sorts of trends. I mean, you've heard the talking heads say all this over and over again in the newspapers, on the television, about declining trust in the media, in the government, in the fact that people can be trusted all going down. Now, actually, in the last year or so, you might see a little uptick. I really believe, strangely enough, that for a lot of people, the referendum result really increased their confidence and belief in democracy. But I don't see the overall trend changing that much. I won't read all these numbers out to you. Right. So this is chapter number one. So this is where I started the book. I'm not going to go through every chapter. Just three little stories. This is the transhumanist's wager. So in 2015, this guy, Zoltan Istvan, put up an Indiegogo fundraising, uh, fundraising page to fund his immortality bus tour. And when he sent this to me, I was like, I am 100% going on this bloody bus tour. There's no way I'm missing it. Because Zoltan Istvan is a transhumanist. And transhumanists believe that we should use technology in whatever way we can to dramatically improve intellectual and physical human capability. That there's no kind of natural state of humans, actually it's a kind of continuum. And with all the incredible advances in science and technology, we can dramatically improve how smart we are, the things that we're able to do, the things we can think, how long we can live for, and so on. Transhumanism. So Zoltan had decided he was going to do, uh, 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 he was going to run for president. And he needed to raise funds to get this bus tour on the road. And he was going to drive this bus from California to Washington, D.C. And this was to raise money for that bus tour. And this is his very, very short one-minute promotional video about it. Hi, my name is Zoltan Ishvan, and I'm the 2016 U.S. presidential candidate of the Transhumanist Party. And I am going to be driving a 40-foot coffin bus across America, promoting transhumanism and life extension. It's something that's going to work. It's something that's going to wake up America and get people thinking that perhaps we don't have to die. Perhaps we can use science and technology to overcome our biological mortality. The immortality bus is a wild idea to traverse the United States. Uh, hopefully getting people to think about um, using science and technology to overcome aging, to overcome death, and to embrace transhumanism. We're going to have campaign drones, we're going to have a robot, we're going to have virtual reality gear on board, we're going to hopefully have a biohacking lab on board. I mean, it's going to be crazy fun stuff. 
Please support the Immortality Bus. Please support my campaign. And let's hope this uh, this uh, 40-foot coffin bus can turn into a big success and uh, really get people thinking about how we can use science and technology better in our lives. Right? Isn't that good? So when I saw that, I'm like, Zoltan, I'm coming on the bloody bus. And... Indeed I did, that's me in the middle. This is the Transhumanism Immortality Bus. Uh, that's me with a T-shirt on of Detector Inspective Columbo. I made it myself, I'm really proud of that. <laughs> so I arrived at uh, Zoltan's house near San Francisco, uh, looking forward to this Immortality Bus tour, where he was going to spend these months traveling across the country, and the short pitch that he gave was, Vote for me if you'd like to live forever. <laughs> that was it in a nutshell. Now, you can't really tell this from this picture, but Zoltan was playing a very clever game with us journalists. And I actually want to talk about how he worked with the media as much as his ideas. So the first thing, I will say something about his ideas, which is the following. Two years ago, when I first got on this bus with Zoltan, he was talking about life extension, so the possibility that actually humans could, sooner than we think, live to 150, maybe even 200, and actually one day in the future, we could potentially live forever. And in fact, the reason this was called the immortality bus was because it was to draw attention to the fact that there is hardly any research, as he sees it, into anti-aging technology. So that was the purpose of calling it a coffin bus. He was also talking about the incredible potential of artificial intelligence and how machine learning algorithms, which could learn how to do things as well as humans could, was one day going to, and sooner than we thought, one day going to eliminate almost all jobs. And he had policies in place for what we were gonna do about that. So, the one that everyone is now talking about is this basic universal income, which is, a, in Silicon Valley at least, has become a kind of, this is what we do when all the machines take over. Now, but when I heard Zoltan talking about this two years ago, it sounded absolutely bonkers. But over the last two years, and especially the last six months, it's actually sounding less and less ridiculous. I don't know how many of you have been looking into the rise of artificial intelligence and automation. You've probably heard it quite a lot more now than you had two years ago. But this was kind of perfect for the thesis of my book because a lot of the stuff that this crazy guy was saying is slowly starting to look like it might actually happen. But anyway, let me get back to the journalist story. Zoltan knew that journalists would find it utterly irresistible to travel across America on a 40-foot coffin bus, which is a 1977 Wonder Lodge with the heating didn't work, the air conditioning didn't work, promising immortality through technology. It was like a perfect story for journalists. So we all lapped it up. I went straight onto this bus, I thought it was amazing. Two of the people there are also journalists. I thought it was gonna be full of transhumanists. There were more journalists on this bus than there were transhumanists. But the reason for that, of course, is that Zoltan knew that the only way you're gonna get any sort of, with a small new movement, the only way you're ever gonna get any political uh, coverage is by doing something exciting and interesting. 
He was pretty open about that. So, where am I pointing this again? Pointing over at you. Has anyone ever, ever been to a talk about technology where something hasn't gone wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is part of the problem. This amazing technologically filled future is always going to go wrong. This is Zoltan uh, getting, I was with him here, this is when he got a, a, an RFID chip implant into his hand so he could open doors and open, unlock his phone with his hand and it was brilliant and us journalists loved it and we were all there taking pictures and writing notes, fantastic, really exciting stuff. Now here's the thing. Zoltan's plan was that through this bus tour, this tiny little movement, the Transhumanist Party, really only recently founded by him, for this tour in fact, would somehow be propelled into a political force because it was such an exciting tour. So I wasn't the only one excited by this. Everybody started covering it. It was unbelievable. Every single step of his tour, which lasted two months, there were journalists on board from all over the world. This is the BBC, The Guardian. This is a brilliant article in The Verge. The bloody New Yorker did a piece on him. Salon. I mean, it was literally, I tried to count them up, 50 or 60 articles about meet the man who is running for, it was always the same, who is running for president promising immortality on a coffin bus. So exciting. Every single one of them said he is running for the transhumanist party. He is the candidate for the transhumanist party in the US election. There's only one small problem with that. There is no transhumanist party. It doesn't exist. It's completely illegal. Nobody checked. Not one journalist checked, me included. Why? Because we were so excited by the possibility that we were going to travel across America with a futurist talking about this wonderful tech-filled future. We didn't bother checking the basic facts. According to FEC law, it is illegal, that's the Federal Election Committee law, Commission law, it's illegal to raise money or to claim that you have a political party that does not exist. Which is exactly what Zoltan was doing. He said he was a candidate for the Transhumanist Party, but he wasn't. He was an independent that was running as an independent, and he'd set up a political action committee that's different called the Transhumanist Party. Nobody checked it. This is the problem with journalism at the moment. So I'm going off topic about radicals. We journalists are so in love with radical political movements, especially exciting ones like this, that we don't bother checking the basic facts. I mean, one of the reasons Donald Trump has done so well is because we're actually all secretly addicted to him. We love watching his stories. We love watching his outbursts. It's thrilling. And it means that we lose focus on what the actual claims are. So shortly after I came back, I actually saw an eye petition from a group of transhumanists who disavowed the, trans, the uh, candidacy of Zoltan Istvan, including some of his own friends and supporters, because they were so frustrated that he'd gone ahead, 
claimed to have founded a party that didn't exist, claimed to be representing the transhumanist movement as a whole, which is a very large one and has very, very influential members, including people like Ray Kurzweil, who's a senior Google guy, who were frustrated that the kind of movement of transhumanism, which is quite a serious one that involves a lot of science, had actually been sort of lost in this unbelievable wave of media that Zoltan had managed to get through this wacky bus tour. But in the end, I don't think Zoltan cared because in the end, he had brought the message of transhumanism, the idea that through technology we can radically change what it means to be human, to millions and millions of people. Far more, I think, than had ever heard about transhumanism uh, before. So that's the story of Zoltan. Really, really peculiar, but a whole lot of fun. Right, second one. And I'm going to do this slightly differently. This is a big risk. This is a big risk, what I'm about to do. I'm going to, show, I'm going to take you on. Do you know, who knows who Tommy Robinson is? The ED, former guy who ran the English Defence League. We're going to go and look at his Twitter feed live. That's my idea. And the reason we're going to do that is because I think it's very important to understand how and why Tommy Robinson is popular and what it's like to be one of the followers and the supporters of groups like the English Defence League. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story of that chapter, but for months I followed around this new political movement called Pegida UK. So you may have heard of Pegida in Germany. Tommy Robinson, Paul Weston and Anne-Marie Walters founded a Pegida UK, a kind of UK branch of Pegida. And the whole thing lasted very conveniently for me almost exactly one year. So I followed it from beginning to end. And the idea of Pegida was that Tommy Robinson wanted to make a kind of respectable version of the English Defence League. He felt like drinking and shouting and swearing and football chanting was never going to really make the English Defence League a force to be reckoned with. He looked over at Germany and saw this new movement, Pegida, which seemed to be comprised of some doctors and teachers and sort of middle-class type people, and wanted to try to make a version of that here. And over the course of one year, he tried and failed to do that. And one of the reasons he failed was because he succeeded in one way. Pegida UK was respectable. I went to all of their demonstrations. They were, there was no drinking, there was no chanting, there was no swearing, and there was no bloody people, because that was the reason everyone went to those demonstrations, was because it was exciting, and there were fights, and it was thrilling, and it meant something to people to be part of a movement where you'd get together like England Away supporters and go from town to town to town, spreading your message. And so it was a fascinating story of how this kind of quest for respectability actually sort of destroyed the very movement that they were trying to create. But one thing about Tommy Robinson and the, um, and I guess the English Defence League as well, that people don't always realise, is that these people are very, very good. There we go. There he is. 
very, very good online. They are incredibly good at sharing information. They're all over Twitter constantly, on Facebook. I mean, and we've seen this for the last decade. The kind of populist right wing, and you've seen it as well with the alt-right, are very, very good online. They run rings around a lot of traditional parties. Now, I don't know exactly what he's going to say here, so we're going to scroll through a few of his tweets. But what I want to try and show you is why this guy is so popular and what it feels like to be surrounded constantly by the same information, the same stories over and over again. Because that's the one thing that I noticed above all with these groups. They have created a very different kind of information universe to the one that I live in. They have very different stories that they share, very different legends, statistics, examples, and they're not made up. They haven't invented a load of stuff. They're not conspiracy theorists. But they're drawing in different stories from all over, especially the internet, and turning it into this very consistent narrative about the West being at war with Islam, about spineless political elites being scared of saying anything in response, and the fact that Western civilization is now completely under attack. And it's fallen on these guys to tell the truth. Now, I was with Anne-Marie Walters, who was one of the leaders of this group, and I think she's actually spoken here before. Maybe I'm wrong. She has, yeah. And, um, and we were in a pub. We spent a lot of time in pubs. We were in a pub. And, she, and I said, and she, well, she said to me, yeah, we can't have these Muslims invading our countries anymore. It's, we just, our whole civilization is under threat. And I said, are you confusing Islam with immigration, are you kind of putting them together? Are, you, are they the same thing to you? And she's like, how fucking dare you? How dare you? Like, blah, blah, like, shouting at me. And before I answered, before I had even responded, she looked at me and said, this is just the shit that you lefty liberal journalists all like to write about us, isn't it? That we're all the same, that we're violent, that we're bigoted. You've got no idea what's really going on. I hadn't even said one word. I hadn't even answered her. She didn't even know me. We'd only just met. But they have created this kind of world where you're sort of insulated from different groups and completely now consumed, I think, with this information that they're always sharing online. So I want to show you what it's actually like. Like I said, this is a bit of a risk. And just as proof of how good he is and how active he is, like this is going to keep going up because the man's tweeting all the time. So when I was with him and I spent weeks with him, he's literally like constantly on there, tweeting, 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 sharing stuff to his 220,000 Twitter followers, which is way more than me. Okay. So apologies in advance for whatever he says, but I thought it was worth it. But what I want to try and illustrate to you, firstly, okay, First thing that you notice is that not everything that these people write about is, is Islam or immigration. They have a much wider kind of sense that there's a great injustice going on. And it's usually the, the justice system, the police especially, and above all political parties that are screwing ordinary decent people. And that narrative comes out in lots of different versions Moore's murder on deathbed as victim family begs to be told where victim is, is buried. Let's see what else he's got. 
Gays Against Sharia UK. More details to follow. So everyone assumes that people like Tommy Robinson are, are far-right bigots. But over the last five years or so, one of the striking things about all of this, and you've seen it with Marine Le Pen, and you've seen it with Geert Wilders, is a very, very vocal and quite aggressive support of gay rights. There was an LGBT wing of the English Defence League because they believe that they are defending Western values, and those Western values include rights for minority groups, but especially rights for gay people, who they believe are under threat from creeping Sharia law. Anne-Marie Walters, she won't mind me saying, is a lesbian in a civil partnership. And she says the reason she got involved in all of this is because she thinks that, as a gay person, her kind of rights will be destroyed by this creeping Sharia. So you haven't actually seen... He's also an author, which is, look at that. Periscopes when drunk, how embarrassing. And this is the other thing that people don't really know about someone like Tommy Robinson. He's, he's unbelievably charismatic and funny. I'm sure you can guess that, because most leaders of these groups are, and it's sometimes uncomfortable to hear it. He, when you see him on the media, he's shouting and he's screaming and he's angry. Nearly every other time you see him, he's really funny. He's cracking jokes all the time. He's a massive prankster. He's pulling tricks on people. And this is why people, his supporters love him, because it feels like he's kind of more authentic, he messes around, he's quite honest about the things that he messes up all the time. That's, I mean, and it's so important to understand that this is why the man has become so, well, I say successful, but I mean, you know, in the end, he was a guy that was a football hooligan from Luton who ran a suntan, like a suntan salon. And now he is, in some senses, a kind of political figure. I'll give you one more. I don't know what it's going to be. I honestly didn't prepare this. I'm never drinking again. Look at that, 1.2 thousand likes for I'm never drinking again. And murders detective searching the location for the body. And the thing is, it's like this. It's just, it's all day, every day. All day, every day. Why is society so afraid to identify grooming as an issue from the Islamic community? PC has let grooming gangs prosper on LBC. Still think Mohammed would condemn ISIS if he was still alive, and there's a quote. Katie Hopkins, I'll be joined about... This is the thing. They draw sources from often quite respected journalistic outputs, and it is 24-7 stories like this, non-stop. And I just want you to try to imagine that if for five or six years, all you have ever read every single day are stories about grooming, about the police refusing to investigate grooming, about radicalization, about terrorism, about, you know, Sikhs being targeted, non-stop. And I think once you get into that mindset, you begin to understand, maybe, how these people have formed the views that they have. And I'm not saying it justifies what people believe, but I think you can't really understand it without living like this for a while. Right. Line your questions up. I'm ready for them. I'm ready for them. Final... Final story. So 
Has anyone ever heard of a place called Liberland before? Did you, did you put your hand up? No. No, I didn't think you had because it doesn't exist yet. But this is a map of Croatia and Serbia, the border. And that tiny little seven square kilometer patch of land is Liberland. Well, it's not actually Liberland, it's nothing. But it's disputed territory. It's one of the only bits of land on earth that is not claimed by a sovereign nation state. Which sounds weird, but the reason is, Croatia says it belongs to Serbia, and Serbia says it belongs to Croatia. Now, you don't normally get that. Normally, people say it belongs to me. But Croatia thinks that after the uh, War of Independence from Serbia, the border between the two countries should follow a particular route, which would give them loads of land, but would put Liberland inside Serbia. They wanted to follow the 19th century course of the Danube. Serbia, who's perfectly happy with the way things are, says, no, 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 we don't want that. That's yours. So this tiny bit of land has become what, in legal terms, is called terra nullius, meaning it's claimed by nobody. And in a very loosely defined set of international principles, the first person who goes there and claims it gets to claim sovereignty over it, which is exactly what um, a man called Vit Jedlicka did in 2015. He's a libertarian from the Czech Republic. He was looking for parts of the world where he might be able to set up a new nation, believing, quite rightly, that the nation-state has a virtual oligopoly over how the world is run. Think back to the 19th century. You had lots of different models for how you could live. Now, all you have is a nation-state. That's it. There's nothing else. How, how many other 192, 190 nation-states, whatever it is? There's no other way to live. You can't decide. I mean, we all say democracy rests on the consent of the governed. But we in this room could not decide we want to start up our own little space here and live according to our rules, tax ourselves as we wish, and set up laws that we wish to live by. We can't do that. We have to follow a sovereign nation state's laws, even if we disagree with them. You can't go up to a police officer and say, yeah, thanks, but I do want to smoke marijuana. But in return, you know, I don't want any of the services that you're offering, so we're good, yeah? We're okay. You have no choice. So Vidjed Lichka is an anarcho-capitalist. It's the most extreme form of libertarian thinking. There should be no state whatsoever. There should be completely voluntary taxation. Voluntary taxation, how good's that? If people want services, they should club together and buy them off the private market, including security and roads and everything else. And there's absolutely no restrictions whatsoever on anything, like you can say anything you want, you can consume anything you want, you can have whatever guns you want, you can do anything you want. And I mean, it's a kind of libertarian paradise. So he, sets, so he goes to Liberland, he sticks his uh, flag in the ground, declares it to be the Free Republic of Liberland, he does it on Thomas Jefferson's birthday, naturally enough, and then he starts sending letters out 
to heads of state and foreign services and foreign offices saying, you know, introducing me, I'm the president of Liberland, um, would like to open up diplomatic relationships with you. To every single country in the world, he sent this. Now, I turned up in just outside Liberland, just up here, because the Croatian police have stopped jet, uh, Vit getting onto Liberland now. They've blocked the roads. So we turned out just outside to celebrate the one-year anniversary of Liberland's founding. And it's absolutely unbelievable. That's Vit and, he, and the first lady, his wife. <laughs> now think about, what it, think about this with a nation state, right? How do you become a nation state? How do, how do you create a new one? I mean, it's not really obvious, is it? The only way really is to get, is this, if other, if other nation states decide you are a nation state, then you become a nation state. That's really it. You need to have technically some land and a settled population, but to become a nation state, other people need to believe you are a nation state with all the functions and the duties and the powers that a nation state should have. Some kind of legal system, a constitution, ministries, and so on. Now, they got the land. They don't have people on the land because the Croatian police have stopped them getting in. But they have 200,000 people that have successfully applied for Liberland citizenship and who said they will go there as soon as the police let them. So they got the people. So now they need to create the image of a nation state. So when I went to this conference, it was literally like they were living in a fantasy world. There were ministers there, there were representatives from different countries, and everybody referred to each other as their official. Thank you, minister, I will take the stage, yes. There'd be detailed discussions on policy arrangements, on constitutional arrangements. Here is their big brochure, the Free Republic of Liberland. You, they got a football team. <laughs> with, the, with the, the branding and everything. They've got their own wine, they've got their own beer. I mean, it's literally like you begin to believe that Liberland is actually a place. They had an architectural competition while I was there. And they asked a lot of architects to come up with designs for Liberland itself. What would this place actually look like? How about that? How about that? We're talking Hong Kong on the Danube. You know, this is an unbelievable... I think that one was the one that won in the end. And it's powered by algae and all sorts of wonderful stuff. Now, I really kind of... It's obviously sort of all make-believe. But how is Liberland getting its money? Liberland is getting thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars donated every single month by extremely rich businessmen, many of whom are based in Silicon Valley, who really love the idea of legally paying zero taxation and living in some kind of libertarian paradise. That's how they're, that's how they're creating all of this. And Vit is the most incredible self-promoter because he's using all of these things to go around the world. He's travelled to nearly every country in the world, visiting people, shaking hands, taking photographs, then showing the next person the photograph of the last guy he shook hands with, which gives him credibility. He's got recognition from a number of reasonably big political parties all around the world, and he is utterly convinced 
that this time next year, at least two or three countries will have officially recognized Liberland, and then the process begins. Now, I really enjoyed Liberland because it just felt like it was an opportunity to explore something new, some new political vision. And there's so few chances to do something like that now. We have lots of different ways of running societies. We don't really have a truly libertarian country, or like intentionally libertarian country, anywhere in the world. It would be kind of interesting to see if it might actually work, wouldn't it? I mean, we need experiments in living. That's what the great philosopher John Stuart Mill always argued for. The more experiments in different ways of living that we can have, the better the chances that we stumble across something that will really work. And to me, that's what Liberland is. And now we actually tried to get to Liberland. That's the kind of end of the story. We had to take a bus over the Croatian border into Serbia. And then we then had to get to Serbia, and then we got a boat, and then we traveled back across the Danube towards Liberland, where the Croatian police blocked us and stopped us getting there, because we're not allowed to land. But we saw it. That's all it is. That is it. There you go. <laughs> that is what Liberland actually looks like. But isn't it exciting to imagine that it might one day be something like that? Do you know why? Because every single day, every single day in this region of Western Croatia, there are no jobs, there are no prospects, there's no real economy. It's the, one of the least densely populated areas of Europe. Unemployment is through the roof, and every single day, 14 people leave this little area for other parts of Europe trying to find work, trying to find something to do with their lives. And there's people here that are trying to make this happen, and it looks like that. So I think let, let, Liber, let, Liber, let Liberland have a chance. It's seven square kilometers. Let Liberland have a chance. And that's the end of the talk. So I've just given you three very short stories. I don't know whether any of those ideas, I mean, the Tommy Robinsons, they're not really new ideas, but I don't know if any of those philosophies are going to amount to anything in the long run. But like I said at the beginning, I really don't, I don't have much confidence in the way that we're set up now to deal with the challenges that are coming down the line. I see a kind of crunch in 20 years of environmental, technological, particularly, those two things, in 20 years, we're going to have serious problems in the way we run society. And I don't see much in the way of politicians thinking about that. So the more experiences and experiments we have in alternatives, in my view, the better. Thank you very much for listening.